finally acted on China Mobile's petition from 2011 that it would like to provide uh, uh, telephone service to uh, Americans in the United States.、Uh, nobody is the least bit surprised that the FCC has said,、uh, "Yeah, over our dead body. Thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, your application must have been." A- Delayed in the mail. If the FCC hadn't done it、uh, this way,、uh, Trump would have tweeted it. He's,、uh, I'm sure, delighted. There's top cover for a decision like this that there wasn't in the last administration. He may have also tweeted that he struck a deal with China Mobile to get them in the United States. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. It's going to be great. Episode 263 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government、uh, for ourselves, not for our children, our spouses, our parents, our partners, our clients, or our institutions.、Uh, today, I'm joined. Actually, I'm not joined, but everybody is in the studio except me.、Uh, I'm、um, recovering from a hike in Cinque Terre in、uh, Italy. Uh, and I just say that to make you jealous.、Uh, but in the studio, and I'm really sorry to miss them because they're usually not, are、uh, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council,、uh, Nick Weaver,、um, senior researcher、uh, at the International Computer Science Institute、uh, and a lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley, and Brian Egan, who's a partner in Steptoe's International Regulation and Compliance Practice. Uh, uh, hi, guys.、Uh, I really wish I were there. There. No, you don't. <laughs> Let's be honest. Okay, fair enough. You're happy、uh, where you are. I wish I were there. I wish I had been able to finish my hike and fly back to see you.、Uh, the hike was great, uh, uh, but it would be fun to see you in person.、Uh, I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Why don't we jump right in? Here's a story. It's getting a little、uh, long in the tooth because it happened just as we were going to、uh, starting to uh, uh, record the last episode. But it is has enough law in it that we should probably talk about it, it、uh, even international law.、Uh, uh, Israel. Dropped a bomb on、uh, what they said was uh, uh, Hamas's cyber operations center.、Uh, took the building down, more or less, or at least. Wiped it out. Not clear they killed anybody, uh, uh, but they did do a kind of a sack dance tweet about it,、uh, saying that the Hamas had been trying to uh, uh, launch cyber attacks、uh, not particularly effectively, and now was no more. Brian,、uh, you wrestled with the question of what the law of armed conflict allows、um, a combatant to do in the event of a cyber attack. Is there anything? Interesting from a legal point of view、uh, about、uh, Israel dropping a bomb on a cyber、uh, attack unit in Hamas. I think the context of this operation is really important, and it would be, in my view, a lot more interesting as a legal matter if it had been done in isolation.、Uh, but the fact it, that this was taking place in the context of both sides dropping bombs on each other. In other words, where、um, I would say activity resembling armed conflict was already going on between the sides, this you would analyze under the normal rules of engagement. Was this、uh, a necessary operation? Was it,、uh, the damage proportionate to the military objectives, etc.? As opposed to analyzing whether, as a threshold matter,、uh, this operation was、uh, a lawful kind of act of war. So I, I think 
you know, on the margins, it's interesting, but it's perhaps not as unprecedented uh, or uh, crossing the Rubicon, as some have said, uh, in the in the broader context. And the fact that the that Hamas's attacks had failed, some people are making out that uh, uh, well, then they should, since they'd already failed, you shouldn't attack them back. Uh, uh, that's just complete BS, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's something that would probably go into the calculation about whether this was an appropriate uh, objective. If if the Hamas operation really was completely feckless and they really had no, this was all bluster and no blow, um, then you might question whether this was an appropriate target. But we don't have any reason to suspect that was the case here. Uh, so just yeah. the fact that it was a failed operation doesn't mean that it would have automatically been off base as a as a military objective. If somebody starts firing mortars at you and they miss with the first two, I think you're still allowed to take them out. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if a, a five-year-old is holding a pop gun at you, you can't take that kid out. And so I think it's probably more the former than the latter in this case. And Nate, uh, any uh, additional thoughts on this one? I always hesitate to take Brian on on these kinds of legal matters. So I'm going to step aside and, and uh, stick with his analysis. I mean, I think at a high level, you know, whether this crosses a Rubicon really depends on whether or not the act was lawful. And I think Brian has, has laid out the considerations there. And, you know, the big one being, you know, whether it is lawful depends a lot on the, the specific facts. And, you know, we have some of those, but I always hesitate to, to make final uh, judgments based on partial facts. Uh, in the news media. Let's move on to China. Uh, the New York Times had a story that has gotten a, a fair share of mockery, not because it was exactly wrong, but because it seemed to be struck by the novelty of something that most people think is not novel at all. China apparently got some NSA hacking tools before the shadow brokers leaks that revealed them to the world and turned them around and used them for its own purposes, uh, not attacking NSA targets or even U.S. targets or even the Five Eyes targets, but using them to go after targets of interest to it. Semantic had a report. And the New York Times said, oh, my God, we did a vulnerability equity process much better than worse than we did because these tools are being used against uh, targets that we didn't intend them to be used against. I'm not sure that this is really all that new, is it, Nick? In some ways it is, just simply because this actually is a very rare event that somebody captures an exploit and uses it rather than captures an exploit and burns it. That most times when you catch somebody else's exploit, you burn it to deny them. But in this case, it looks like China decided to use it in very limited ways that it wouldn't get burned either. And it wasn't all the tools. It was just one or two, notably some very unique privilege escalation attacks. That is, you're on a computer and you want to get God mode on that computer. And when you realize that you that somebody was doing that to you, you quickly reverse engineer it and try to figure out what they've, what they've done so that you can do the same. Right. And you make a decision based on who your adversary is, whether you should burn that asset or use it yourself, and China decided to use it themselves. The only real interesting question on the equities process is, did the NSA know that China knew the exploit? There's no indication on the reporting that that's the case, and that Symantec's report on this didn't come out till basically years after the event. 
suggests that the Chinese were very careful in using this attack, and therefore it actually is probably the NSA did not know about it, just simply because China was using it with a lot of care and delicacy. Okay, so I have a theory. My theory is that the NSA didn't know, but the Russians did. And that's why one of the reasons why they released the shadow brokers uh, uh, leak. The other was that Microsoft had patched a lot of this stuff, and therefore it was not likely to be valuable for actual break-ins. It's a bit more subtle that what happened in that is the shadow brokers did a announcement of an auction for the Windows exploits. And in doing that, they included the names of the exploits. The NSA Uh went, oh, bleep. Now we know adversaries do have these. Quick, let's tell Microsoft. Microsoft did a very fast out-of-cycle patch. And then a month later, the shadow brokers just went, oh, great, the NSA just uh, blew the value of our auction and dumped it publicly. Nate, you guys actually got the chance to see a lot of this up close. My memory was that actually there was a, uh, the Georgian government flipped an attack and sent back to the attacker the same malware he had sent them, and they actually were able to turn on his camera and get pictures of him uh, back during the run-up to the war with Russia. Uh, So I think this has happened, but uh, it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, and I think it goes to Nick's earlier point, which is, you know, when you, you know, when you are the victim of such an attack, and you want to turn around and use that, you have to be careful and intelligent about who you use it against. And the person that's aware of it and using it has likely, you know, set up their system in a way that helps them or allows them to detect its use against them and and take steps to prevent or mitigate those kinds of things. I think that's what we saw in that case. Look, you're not going to know for sure whether they're going to catch you unless you try it, is my guess. And I think Nick's question is the right question. How can you tell when somebody is somebody else is using your tool when your your Nobus uh, uh, tool, nobody but us tool, has become a uh, Sumbus tool, uh, which is somebody but us uh, is using it, and that's when you start to say, okay, now it, its value is dramatically reduced, and if it's being used by the Russians or the Chinese, it's probably used in ways that we will really not like, and we we need to get it fixed soon. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that second order question about what you do about it when you find out about it is an important one as well. And and that depends in, in no small part on how you think the people who have it are going to use it and what types of harms are going to flow from that. So I, I wonder, and Nick may have a view on this, I doubt you can tell whether the Chinese are using uh, your tools unless you're hacking the same targets that the Chinese are hacking, and you can be essentially watching them work. Yes, or they're hacking a target you're defending. Yes. It's a real hard problem, and that's probably combined with the very light touch of the Chinese usage, why um, the NSA didn't go and say, hey, Microsoft, this one vulnerability needs fixing. Yeah, this it, it is interesting how gradually the Chinese are learning a lot of tradecraft that was just assumed by the Russians and the, the Americans, and that the 
Chinese didn't pay much attention to, but are starting to pay more attention to, which is like conserving your uh, your tools, hiding your uh, your hand from people you think might uh, do you harm. Uh, th that was not the original style, as I've said before. It was sort of uh, drive a Chevy through the plate glass window and grab what you can. They're they're getting better at this, aren't they? Yes. The Iranians, not so much. Uh, they could kitten his back, uh, uh, and uh, they're uh, uh, they're having a lot of their tools exposed. Uh, anything interesting ab uh, about the story that says that there's somebody who's making it their business to release a lot of these tools and a lot of the uh, information about the attackers? There's the question: Is this NSA or GCHQ? using intelligence gleaned to harm the Iranians or France or Israel or anybody? Or is this a insider who's really trying to burn things? Because I know some Iranian citizens who now have U.S. green cards, and oh, I would not be a fan of that government. No, it's absolutely the case. My guess is, you know, why not embrace the healing power of and? It, it could easily be somebody inside who is helping uh, somebody outside to do this. Uh, but uh, it wouldn't be hard for the West to say, hey, you know, that really hurt when the Russians did that to us. Uh, maybe we ought to start using it ourselves. Especially with Iran, where you don't have the advantage of uh, being able to vacation in Sochi and other places. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So there's now been a documented attack on the U.S. grid. Now, I would not say it was um, – it didn't bring the grid down, but it was an effort to cause problems on the grid with a cyber attack. Brian, did you uh, take a look at that? I did, Yes. So it, it sounds like it took place a couple of months ago. Um, it was uh, a one-day event. It sounds like it was not incredibly disruptive, but it was serious enough that it was the first uh, grid attack that has been publicly reported uh, as is required in certain circumstances. DDoS attack on some of the control points, which made it hard to do uh, the usual control of the network, if I remember right. Uh, and so not the most effective. It, in fact, it wasn't effective uh, because there were resilience backups. Uh, but you kind of think it was probably a test to see whether it would work uh, and uh, um, that we're telling people something when we say, yeah, we were able to defeat that. Uh, um, it, it's not particularly comforting that we beat the first uh, and easiest attack on the grid. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't know what the motivation here was. Some are speculating that the the hackers may not have even known that they hit these, this particular part of the U.S. grid. But just the fact that it raised the level of requiring reporting and, and various reassurances from the Department of Energy and the U.S. government suggests that, that this is somewhat noteworthy. This falls under the heading of better late than never, I think. The FCC has finally acted on China Mobile's petition from 2011 that it would like to provide uh, uh, telephone service to uh, Americans in the United States. Uh, and um, if they'd answered in 2011, they would have been under great pressure to say, oh, yeah, sure. 
Now, nobody is the least bit surprised that the FCC has said, uh, yeah, over our dead body, thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, your application must have been delayed in the mail. My assumption, Brian, uh, uh, is that this issue had had to have come up in some fashion uh, during the Obama administration, and it just – it or the Obama FCC was just – reluctant to take action that would appear to take a national security stand on providing telecom service for fear that that would encourage the Chinese to say the same about U.S. telecom services in China. I don't know. This one has been pending for so long that I don't think anybody's really surprised by this pronouncement. I think people have assumed that this was an effective denial, even if the letter hadn't appeared in the mail yeah. Well, I, I think that's right. When, when, when you get uh, eight years of, well, I'm washing my hair that week, you kind of know you're being turned down. Yeah, uh, I, I think at some point that message became pretty clear. Um, and I think this is one of the cases that some people point to as exposing the, the shortcomings or the, the difficulties in the so-called team telecom review process at the FCC, where the FCC is just not really well equipped and they will be the first to admit it, to figure out what to do in response to an application that raises national security concerns. They don't have a great process for dealing with them. There's no legislation that really spelled out what to do. They've taken a lot of steps to reform that process. And it's possible that this is just a um, one of the things that reflects the reform is finally answering the mail on, on this particular application. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a funny relationship. I, I mean, I when I was uh, uh, running Team Telecom for uh, DHS, my view was we don't need no stinking legislation. We don't need no help from the FCC. Back off. We'll tell you what to do. But over time, Team Telecom got slower and slower about resolving cases that it was torn on, and that began to embarrass the FCC, which finally said, you know, we can set some deadlines here, and we might just do that. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Nick, uh, any uh, uh, thoughts, uh, diplomatic or otherwise? I think the long delay suggests that everybody knew it was an obviously bad idea, but it's remarkably hard for the security agencies, intelligence agencies to explicitly articulate it for fear of, oh my God, it might touch on stuff that's classified that, no, the phone system is a dreaded nightmare where everybody trusts everybody within the country, therefore you don't. And so the one thing that I take away is that, truth be told, I think the the intelligence and law enforcement communities should basically get several experts without clearances to be able to shoot down things like this earlier on in the process. Yeah, I think it was also the I think it was the politics of the thing more than the fear of talking about uh, classified material. It, it, it just diplomatically and politically uh, this was not something that the Obama administration wanted to be known for. The first people to say we think there's a real national security interest in um, keeping the Chinese uh, from providing this this service. Now, you know, if the FCC hadn't done it uh, this way, uh, Trump would have tweeted it. He's, I'm sure, delighted there's top cover for a decision like this that there wasn't in the last administration. He may have also tweeted that he struck a deal with China Mobile to get them in the United States. So, <laughs> yes, that's right. It's going to be great. There's going to be thousands of jobs. Yeah, uh, remember uh, the ZTE tweet? <laughs> right, exactly. 
There is one other thing I'd like to add. I hope that the FCC would do the same if a major French-owned government telecommunications outfit wanted to do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, the French, you know, that, that, that's the hard question. Uh, you're absolutely right, because uh, the, the French are enthusiastic about these kinds of tools. They just haven't been very uh, effective at using them uh, compared to some of the bigger uh, economic players. Here's a fascinating one where, you know, uh, you, you, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, Facebook and other social media have been taking down terrorist content uh, as fast as it goes up. They're under pressure to get it down in an hour, uh, and they're doing that. Uh, and now, uh, Nate, it turns out maybe there's some downside to taking it all down. Yeah, you can never make anybody happy at the end of the day. Um, it, with these automated tools, as you said, Stuart, they're pulling things down pretty quickly. And as they're doing so, this um, this Atlantic story does a, an interesting profile on the impact it's having on prosecutors and human rights activists who are using some of that information on social media, particularly photographs and videos um, that are posted by terrorists or, or terrorist groups to build cases around them and with an eye toward prosecution ultimately. And as you take more and more of that down, that job gets harder and harder. And this is something that has actually been known both within the government and the tech industry since these discussions about taking down content uh, began several years ago. And it even goes beyond the, the elimination of possible evidence to potential concerns with the lack of deconfliction processes where, you know, the government may be watching a particular individual and you have tech companies um, taking down content or closing accounts and bumping up against those problems. And I think the million dollar question here is, you know, if, if it's impeding on other important objectives, what do you do about that? We've seen in the, the context of child sexual uh, abuse material where in, in the context of a statutory obligation to report to NCMEC, there are ways that tech companies can preserve that information and report it to law enforcement when they see it. But absent some kind of statutory obligation uh, to do that, you run into possible agency problems that they've largely avoided, uh, even though those have been the subject of quite a bit of of litigation in the NICMEC context. Let me, let me push on that, because uh, uh, it seems like a creative prosecutor could uh, overcome this uh, just by uh, putting together a uh, war crimes uh, case against uh, ISIS, which, you know, you, you wouldn't be hard to find probable cause. And then you, uh, you generate subpoenas that say to uh, Facebook and Twitter, Google, we're investigating ISIS for war crimes, and uh, you have evidence uh, when you take down ISIS evidence that uh, ISIS sites and uh, posts that might provide evidence of war crimes, preserve them and give them to us. Here's your subpoena. Have a good day. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of possible challenges with that, Stuart. One is they're not experts on ISIS, right? So a lot of what they're taking down is transparently terrorist content, which groups those individuals are associated with isn't always clear. And so you, in that context, you're sort of getting into a, putting these companies into a position where they're making subjective determinations on things that they aren't necessarily experts in. And the second thing is you may have some overbreath challenges with such a broad 
and ongoing uh, preservation order. Typically, preservation orders are exclusively backward-looking under the Stored Communications Act. To have it be a forward-looking, ongoing preservation order, um, I haven't thought a lot about that and the potential legal implications, but it strikes me that there may be some. You think it, you think Facebook is going to say, we object to helping the U.S. government to find war crimes evidence in the terrorist posts we've taken down? I mean, they could, of course, but the U.S. government could store it. That's not there. They've got the storage uh, space. Overbreadth, I think, is a, is a problem, but it, it, you can write the subpoena to say, uh, this is what we're investigating, and these are the kinds of evidence that we're interested in. You save stuff like that, and if we decide it's not ISIS, we'll get rid of it. There's also a question, I guess, for this may be one for Nick, but um, there's a question about how you do that with an automated tool that's trained to take it down this quickly. And is there a way to even... Oh, come on. Tool come on. You could write a line of code that says take it down and send it here. But again, you the, the line of code has to be preserve only the stuff we're obligated to preserve. It's not take everything down that meets these criteria, right? Also, one of the big problems is the biggest customer for this in terms of developing prosecutorial stuff is not the government, but individuals and groups like Bellingcat. And so what you really need to do is convince the big tech companies not to take it down and send it to the government, but take it down, but leave it available for a group of vetted researchers. And that's a Hard layer eight problem. It's you've got to get buy-in from those companies to do work to share the data in such a way that the open source communities can take advantage of it. Well, they, they, they were all going to say we have to have a subpoena before we're going to provide anything to anybody. Not necessarily. Um, no, I guess that's, they they could write in their into their terms of service. Uh, by the way, if you post terrorist t- uh, content that's so bad we take it down, we're going to make it available to researchers who are trying to prosecute you. Well, they already do have a if you give us data, we're allowed to do anything we want with it. Among that is forward it to Bellingcat, or, or worse, to, you know, to really get the terrorists go, we'll give it to Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> the Intercept, God bless them. What a bunch of bozos. They have they have managed to convict he, or at least to get arrested yet another leaker with uh, a story that nobody read except apparently the U.S. Uh, intelligence community. And uh, uh, they almost immediately figured out who had leaked it uh, and uh, arrested him, although it's taken them years to uh, – actually, it's taken them years to – fully arrest them, but they had a search party out, uh, search warrant in days. Is, is that the basic story, Nick? Yes. So one flaw that The Intercept has as a publication is a fetish for publishing actual documents. And that makes it much easier to find the leakers because it's not who had access to this knowledge, it's who had access to these particular instances and or access printers. And so in this case, they knew who the leaker was within a few days. They had successfully searched his house. And the Intercept also holds on to documents a long time before publishing, that if you are a leaker who thinks that something's important, the Intercept's actually a bad platform for it because a lot of the documents were they sat on for months and in a couple of cases, a year and a plus 
after the suspect got arrested, there is one thing that may or may not explain the long delay between the search warrant and the filing of charges. This guy, a 20-some-year-old, um, fairly idealistic, has Abby Lowell as his personal defense attorney? Yes, and that's not pro bono. That's, uh, uh, that's an expensive proposition, usually. Yeah. So there's something here that we don't know about until the press dig further. And the, the questions are, why so long between search and arrest? And how is this guy affording Abby Lowell as a defense attorney? Well, and you, I, I think it's also fair to ask, why is The Intercept making this guy's legal problems worse by holding on to stuff for a year and then say, yeah, we'll publish that too. You know, why not, you know, might as well hang for a sheep as a goat. Uh, it's not exactly treating your source uh, as an ally. And I think it's more important just the whole hold on to it bit. Yeah, if you want to have impact, sending it to somebody who says, yeah, oh, when I get around to it, I'll probably publish that. Yeah, and this is... This combined with the need to publish the raw documents has really hurt intercept sources. The other thing that's interesting is the whole use tour, use tales approach. Tales is useless except if you want to make sure there are no forensics of your activity, period, full stop. Finding evidence that you are trying to hide all potential evidence is evidence that will be used against you. Yeah. Well, we're running low on time. Uh, Google and um, Twitter continue to get caught and suffer publicity for taking down stuff uh, uh, that offends uh, 30-something or 20-something social justice warriors. Uh, uh, Google took down a uh, or uh, decommissioned a, a Claremont Institute uh, uh, publication. Twitter took down the guy who was responsible for writing the, uh, uh, the standard for uh, transsexual uh, gender dysphoria, uh, and he explained what he thought of gender dysphoria and when it was a, a legitimate and an appropriate uh, thing to treat and when it wasn't. Very professional. Uh, Twitter said, oh, that's hate speech that's got to come down and, and uh, uh, blocked his account. Um, so uh, again, the lefty bias of uh, the Silicon Valley is showing up uh, all over the place and raising this question. I think it's, I'm, I'm convinced that it's the reason Senator Hawley is so enthusiastic about having the FTC uh, uh, impose large fines and personal liability on uh, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and on Facebook is because he hates the, the bias of uh, Silicon Valley. The FTC, on the other hand, seems to be really cautious about saying we ought to get involved in this. Nate, uh, Joe Simon said basically, we don't want to write privacy rules. Uh, Noah Phillips said, you know, if if we do privacy rules, don't confuse them with antitrust law. And at the same time that people like uh, one of the Facebook co-founders is saying you ought to break up Facebook. Um, where does all that sit? Well, as you say, um, you know, as, as support for privacy laws and regulation in this space grows, FTC wants to play hot potato. 
And I tend to think that's right. I mean, I think giving them some kind of broad regulatory mandate or using um, existing legal principles like antitrust law puts them in a tough position and it puts industry in a tough position. I think, you know, if we're going to go this route, you know, Congress essentially has to do its job and figure out what appropriate regulations look like and what role FTC should play in enforcing those things. Yeah, I you know the, the they've got this FTC case, um, and it is a reflection of just how unpopular uh, Facebook is that they're talking about these massive fines. Yes, I think they probably do have some violations, but uh, the real problem is that Facebook has managed to uh, piss off both the left and the right uh, uh, in in different ways, and so they don't have any any friends left in Washington. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a conservative like Hawley that saying that Facebook and the rest of Silicon Valley should be facing massive privacy liability is a way to address the concern about their content bias. And I, you know, I didn't even understand Chris Hughes. He said they should be broken up, but why and how, other than they're too powerful, they should be broken up. Uh, I'm not sure that you know if you, you hived off its their their main um, acquisitions, uh, Instagram and uh, WhatsApp, that they'd really have less power over the people who really like Facebook. They might not have as much of a future, but the amount of competition they'd have would have gone up. Uh, in the advertising field, though, uh, Facebook and Google uh, predominate partly because of the data that they've gathered on their own, but also because they've become part of the structure of the Internet and provided a lot of tools that, as a additional feature, send data to Facebook or Google about users of the Internet that uh, makes them the principal providers of information for purposes of targeted a advertising. Uh, I don't think any of the privacy stuff I've seen is really going to change the real source of power for at least Google and Facebook. I, I think that's right, but I also think it depends a little bit on, on Senator Hawley's motivations, right? If his motivations are truly to give people like Ben Sh Shapiro a fair shake on social media so he can get the followers he's entitled to or deserves, like he's having trouble currently, then I think that this isn't a good approach to that. If it's just to punish somebody who, you know, you whose politics you disagree with or you think whose um, social media platform disadvantages you in some way, then this may actually accomplish some of his goals, not to impugn his motives or anything. The other problem is, is we have seen a very disturbing trend among how the big companies acquire. So Microsoft and Apple acquire to keep them out of potential competition. So you've got potential antitrust issues right there. Google, Amazon, and Facebook not only have that as an objective in their purchases, but tend to follow a continual playbook where they buy a company that acquires a lot of data from people under a promise of it's kind of isolated. Nest, um, Eero, um, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram. And then they initially go, yes, we're going to data silo, etc. And then two years later, they optimize away the data silos. And now your uh, Nest smoke detector is spying on you for Google. Um, and I don't think any current regulation really addresses this behavior, 
but it is something that is having a negative effect on consumers. I think there are ways to deal with that. If, if, if the merger requires antitrust approval and is sufficiently large, you can impose conditions saying this promise that you're making to them, you're stuck with it until the end of time, or at least for 15 years. Uh, so you could do that in the context of a merger if you were willing to do antitrust investigations of those mergers. But of course, some of the mergers are just not uh, competitively significant uh, at the time they occur. So you might have trouble making those conditions stick. Uh, and Nate, I, I actually think uh, and this is a theme of at least 10 years of Baker commentary on privacy law, <laughs> uh -oh. that the only value of privacy law is that it allows you to punish arbitrarily people you've decided you don't like. <laughs> uh, the, the privacy law is, is so utterly unformed. The, the things that it forbids are so likely not to offend us 10 or 15 years from now, or at least not to give us a good feeling about uh, uh, have a good relationship to what we value from a privacy point of view, that the people who violate it will mostly just be ignored because we don't think it's important to just like uh, the rules that uh, uh, we got from Justice Brandeis about how shocking of, of an invasion of privacy it was to take somebody's picture uh, have been mostly completely ignored, but you could still probably pursue a whole bunch of people for taking pictures that they don't have permission from uh, uh, Justice Brandeis to take. And the reason we don't do it is we say, well, come on, that's ridiculous. Until we decide, well, we really don't like that guy. And look, you know, it's like Capone with uh, a tax cheating. We've got him on privacy. Let's stick it to him. That's, I think, that it, it, that's not the why the privacy laws get passed, but that's how they get used 10 years after they've taken effect. Yeah, that's why Senator Hawley's after it. Um, and I think I do think that Nick raises an important point. But to me, you know, that speaks to broader failings of our antitrust law and, and its enforcement that even goes beyond the tech industry. And so um, that could be a subject of an entirely other podcast. And it will be because we're done with this one. Uh, uh, thanks to Brian Egan. Thanks to Nate Jones. Thanks to Nick Waver for joining. Uh, this has been episode 263 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson and by Stuart Baker's 10-year-old views on privacy law. Uh, don't forget, if you've got a, an interview guest you want to suggest, uh, I send that suggestion to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com and we'll give you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug if they come on the show. Uh, uh, Follow me on Twitter, and from time to time, I will uh, tweet the uh, topics that we're thinking about uh, uh, discussing, but I was damned if I was going to do it from Cinque Terre, uh, so I didn't do it this week. Uh, uh, please do rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We've gotten a lot of reviews uh, recently, and it really does make a difference. Uh, so thank you for, for that, and I will read your – especially if you're entertaining, I will definitely read your review on the air. Christy Jorge is our producer. Doug Pickett's our audio engineer. Got me hooked up with Skype just in time for this uh, uh, episode. Michael Beaver is our assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.